Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. When labor economist David Card began studying the minimum wage in the 1980s, the conventional wisdom in economics about how labor markets worked was heavily dependent on pen and paper theories from the 1920s. Those theories said things like, if the minimum wage goes up, fewer people will have jobs. But in a series of moves that quietly revolutionized the way economics would be practiced, Card and his colleague Alan Kruger began looking at real-world data from fast food restaurants in neighboring towns in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. And they found that raising the minimum wage didn't kill off jobs. This type of quote-unquote natural experiment allowed Card to probe complex economic mysteries and provide insight on policy changes. David Card joins us to talk about his work, the quote, credibility revolution in economics that it helped spawn, and winning with Stanford professor Guido Imbens and Joshua Angris from MIT, the Nobel Prize in Economics. Welcome to the show, Professor Card. Thank you. So first of all, congratulations. Uh, and I want to ask you about some of these, these kind of key studies that led to this win, or early work, and then we'll kind of work up from there. So first, can you just kind of tell us about this minimum wage study? Uh, in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Sure. Um, so at the time I was uh, teaching at Princeton, um, Alan and I were both uh, professors there. And we had both done a little bit of work on minimum wages. Uh, and while we were reading the newspaper, we noticed that New Jersey legislature just passed um, a bill to raise the state minimum wage to $5.05. Um, and at the time, everyone was at the federal minimum was four twenty-five. So we uh, realized that this could be a chance to design a study that might be um, informative really and incredible about the effect of the minimum wage. So we quickly recruited a, a um, surveying team and we um, surveyed a bunch of restaurants in New Jersey and nearby Pennsylvania, the part of Pennsylvania along the border. And then the minimum wage went up and then we resurveyed the same uh, restaurants nine or 10 months later. And then we basically just tabulated up the results and said, okay, what happened to employment store by store? Was it, was there more job losses in Pennsylvania than New Jersey? Uh, that that's basically it. And, and how was it received? Like did other economists just go like, Oh, great. Overturning, um, you know, 80 years of theory. <laughs> like, uh, how did they take it? Well, I, kind of a mixed reaction, I would say, uh, you know, maybe one quarter <laughs> positive, three quarters negative. Um, so at the time uh, at Princeton, uh, we had a, some, my senior colleague, uh, Orly Ashenfelter, who's still professor there, he'd been kind of preaching this idea that we needed to try and get economics onto a so more solid empirical framework. And he, he had been advocating for the use of uh, experiments in um, a different context. And you can't really do an experiment on minimum wages, but you can, you can do what we did. Um, and so he was supportive. Um, some of our other colleagues, there, there was an, uh, an old time professor at Berkeley, uh, at Princeton, who had um, worked on the minimum wage in the 1940s. 
named Richard Lester. And he had always argued that the minimum wage didn't have these huge employment effects, but he was sort of overwhelmed by the, <laughs> the noise of the crowd, I think. So anyway, we had our fans, but a lot of other people weren't so happy. And, you know, as I understand it, you actually don't see just the, the pure finding that the that jobs went away. It's kind of like the real message of that study. Like that you actually see kind of that this was part of a, a deeper message about the flexibility that companies have in setting wages. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty important to understand that the textbook models that you mentioned in your introduction uh, from the 1920s, they are predicated on the idea that um, firms don't have any discretion in setting wages. There's there's essentially a wage out there for a given worker. And uh, if you want to hire that person, you pay that wage. If you pay less than that, they won't come. If you pay more than that, you're kind of wasting your money. And so that's in on that setting, then the, all these predictions about negative effects of minimum wages rise. But in a more realistic setting, like uh, everyone's kind of familiar with who's ever had a real job, employer has some discretion in setting wage, maybe not a huge range, maybe, maybe a significant range. And we can see right now, for instance, a lot of employers are desperately trying to recruit workers and they're using a combination of uh, incentives, uh, bonuses, incentives for coworkers to bring somebody in. And in that setting, um, you might say, well, why don't they just raise the wage? And of course the answer is if they raise the wage, it's true they'll get more workers, but they also have to pay more to the existing workforce. And so they're kind of doing a trade-off between those two. And in those kind of settings, uh, if you force them to raise wages, they'll have more workers and you will get an increase in employment. And we, we thought of our work as trying to basically overturn the idea that firms don't have any discretion in setting wages. We're talking with Berkeley economist David Card, who was awarded the Nobel Prize in economics last week. He's also director of the Labor Studies Program at the National Bureau of Economic Research. And we want your questions for Nobel laureate David Card. You know, how has the rise in minimum wage uh, affected your life? Um, and do you just have any questions about the, the current state of labor economics? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I want to talk about um, one other classic study of yours, which was on this boat lift of Cuban uh, refugees into Miami and the way that you used it as kind of a natural experiment to, to probe the effect of immigration on um, workers already in the country. Can you tell us about it? Sure. Um, so again, setting was I'd, I'd done some research on immigration before and uh, the focus of my work was really on whether it was the case that arrival of immigrants, um, especially lower skilled immigrants, had a negative effect on um, on native workers. Um, and uh, it was very difficult to, to isolate that in, in a kind of straightforward way. And then um, I found out about the boat lift. I, I learned about it from a student at Princeton, actually, um, and realized that this would be a good opportunity. So I, I just did a very straightforward thing. Um, I found a set of cities, which when you average them together, kind of looked like Miami in the past. <laughs> so I, I created kind of an artificial Miami using a combination of other cities in Houston and Tampa and Atlanta and um, LA, I think it was. And those cities would form essentially the Pennsylvania for this experiment. Um, and then the boat lift happened, a pretty large number of people, about 75, 80,000 people stayed in Miami as a result of the boat lift. And it happened overnight, so it was a really stark shock. 
And I then followed over the next five years what happened to wages and unemployment rates, specifically focusing on um, lower skilled workers and minority workers in Miami, which had a very diverse labor market at the time. So um, when you do a study like that and you see its effect, you publish it. Do you expect it to have a major policy impact? And, and which of your pieces of research do you think have had the largest impact on the way that the labor market is regulated in the United States? Um, well, normally what happens is you do a study, you write it up, and um, it, it, it's very difficult to know whether it's going to have even an impact on the economists, let alone on the policy sphere. For instance, in the case of the minimum wage work that Alan and I did, really after that, there wasn't much going on with the, you know, the federal minimum wage kind of stalled out. There was a small increase some years later, but you could, if you looked at the data, you might say that our work basically prevented a rise in the federal minimum wage. <laughs> we always made a laugh about that. Um, but later on, it maybe things start to change. Um, people pick up the idea a little bit. Um, so you, you see some evidence of change. The most recent thing I've done that probably had the most immediate impact was studying um, uh, a, a situation in, in another place in, um, in Broward County, Florida, which is basically Fort Lauderdale area. And they had um, tried to expand their gifted program for, for uh, elementary school children. And gifted programs are very controversial, as I'm sure you know. Um, and one of the reasons why they're so controversial is very few minority students are in those programs. And Brown did a really amazing thing. They basically screened every second grader. And we just did a, I did this with Laura Giuliano at uh, Santa Cruz. And uh, Laura and I basically just got the data and looked at who did they find? What were the extra gifted kids that were located with the universal screening program? And we found that a very large fraction of them were um, black and Hispanic kids with, from, from poorer families. And so it really suggested that the reason why there's low participation in gifted programs is at least in part driven by um, the, the, the talented kids are not being identified. And that had an immediate impact. A bunch of um, school districts immediately got interested. That's so interesting. We have some uh, listener questions and, and comments. I want to go first to a, a comment a listener asks, um, I'm seeing so many help wanted signs with jobs that pay well over minimum wage, uh, $19 an hour at In-N-Out, for example. It's probably in San Francisco. And I wondered if this rise in wages is contributing to inflation. My grocery bill seems to be rising. The loaf of bread that used to be four fifty is now five seventy five. Are wages and inflation related? Um. Well, that's actually a long-standing question, whether wages drive inflation or whether wages um, follow behind inflation. Right now, um, I think the most recent data I saw suggested that although wages have been rising, they haven't been rising as fast as prices. So real wages adjusted for inflation are actually, for most workers, falling. Um, there is a concern, I guess, that back when I was an uh, undergraduate and even into graduate years in the late 70s, there was a, a pretty strong burst of, of inflation in many countries. And there's a concern, um, some economists, that we might advance into that kind of situation where both wages and prices start to rise in what they call a spiral. Um, it's, it's not something I'm totally um, confident of, that we know enough about to say for sure. Um, so I, I, I personally think it's unlikely, but you, it's possible it's true, will happen. I'd like to add in a uh, caller, Keith from Palo Alto. Welcome to the show. Oh, 
Yeah, thank you. Can you hear me fine? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead, Keith. Great, great. So my question for the Nobel laureate is, uh, now that his work has been recognized uh, in this way, uh, do you think that uh, it will result in a change in the policy level, in particular um, a reduction in the objection to raising the national minimum wage that seems to be very common among, among uh, Republican politicians? Thank you for that, Keith. Take my answer off the air. Wonderful. Thank you. David Card? Uh, yeah, that's a good question, Keith. Um, no, I don't think it'll have any effect. Um, actually, we did a, as part of a book that Alan Kruger and I did when we followed up on um, our, our that study, we looked at voting choices for minimum wages, and there was some some really good ironies. For instance, in the um, just after that, that time we wrote the book, there was or when this, our study, there was a, a vote on a federal minimum wage, and all the Republican delegation from California voted against it, even though the minimum wage in California was already higher than what they were proposing to raise the federal minimum to. Mm -hmm. So uh, minimum wage is an example of what political scientists call symbolic politics. It's really very symbolic. And, and um, it's not, you know, I, I think the choices are you, your party chooses one side or the other side and you kind of stuck with that. Yeah. You know, I, I'm curious what we don't understand. You've been studying this labor market for so long, and obviously the labor market has a huge effect on uh, inequality, uh, income, uh, and wealth. What don't we understand about what's generating higher levels uh, of inequality than we saw in the past? Oh, enormous amount of stuff we don't understand. Um, one thing we really don't understand fully is uh, whether um, workers at the very top um, have some incredibly unique skill. I mean, are they, you know, are they the Clint Eastwoods of their profession or are they, or are they just basically lucky? Um, and, you know, it's probably an element of both of those there, but is it 90% luck and 10% extraordinary talent or, or the other way around? And uh, it's very difficult to discern that. Um, we can see we're starting to get more and more data uh, from different sources that allow us to follow the same worker as they move across their careers. And people are really getting interested in, in to what extent we should be thinking about it uh, as um, talent or luck or what combination. And that really influences a lot about, you know, does it matter if we tax it? If it's just luck, then it doesn't matter nearly as much if we tax it. So that, that I think will ultimately be a very important question. You know, you've mentioned a couple of times new data coming into the field and really kind of leading the transformation uh, of the theory. What's a sort of what are the big kind of sources of this new data that are have allowed you to kind of do more in different types of experiments? Well, there's probably two two main sources. One is um, the government, federal government or state governments are always collecting data for regulatory purposes and tax purposes. And um that data can be used to study all kinds of things. For instance, the state of California has a one of the world's best um, health-related data sets. So every time a baby is born, there's a record created of what happened in the hospital, what happened to the mother, um, and some information from the birth certificate. And then that's matched together with like information on whether the um, you know if the baby was to die over the next year or two. Um, and subsequent visits to the hospital by that baby or by the mother. And I've used that kind of data in looking at um, whether babies born um, delivered by C-section have uh, worse health outcomes. But you, you can 
you can put together all that data because it's basically being collected anyway as part of regulation system. And that's starting to be made available to researchers. Similarly, tax data, the unemployment insurance system taxes everyone in the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that tax record data is, is used. Um, I have a new study looking at we, you know, whether when you adjust for the cost of living, are our wages higher or lower in San Francisco mm-hmm. uh, relative to other places? Um, the other source, of course, is things like the Internet. Uh, there's just an amazing amount of data being created there. So thinking about those sources of data, what areas of economics are you think most likely to undergo you know, major revolutions over the, the coming years? I think my own field will continue to be a, a leader. Um, most of the people in the field are very aware of new data and are really interested in different hypotheses. Uh, we're re- making a lot of progress, I think, in understanding changes in the gender gap, the wage gap between male and female workers, um, partially because of this new data. Um, we're making some progress on understanding um, differences between white and non-white workers or by ethnicity. That is a little harder because the, the distribution of those workers is, is pretty skewed across different places. Um, we're making good progress in, or some progress in understanding sources of um, differences in children's outcomes as they, as they age. And I think we're going to see a lot more work on that in the next uh, 10, 15 years where we can see children growing up in neighborhoods, things happen in that neighborhood, something happens to the other kids in that neighborhood, how that ends up affecting those children and really understanding those sources of neighborhood differences. You know, in a place like San Francisco, they're just very, very visible and everyone is very aware of them. And understanding what the neighborhood really does is probably a new frontier. And what about the internet data? Do you plan on making use of that in in future studies? Um, I have done some research um, using things like internet data. I did a study a few years ago with some colleagues at uh, Berkeley um, where uh, our the salary information for everybody in the UC system was put online by the Sacramento Bee. <laughs> and uh, that was just going to happen or just happened. And we, we surveyed people um, and said, are you aware of this you know, salary data? We nudged people basically in the treatment group of the experiment to um, take a look at the ZACB website. And then we asked a few weeks later, we asked, okay, amongst the treatment group versus the control group, we, we didn't nudge. We asked, um, you know, is there any evidence that um, the people who found out about the salaries of their coworkers were um, dissatisfied with their job or, or more satisfied with their job? So we, we, we did a study like that. Wow, so interesting. We're talking with Berkeley economist David Card, who was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics. He's also director of the Labor Studies Program at the National Bureau of Economic Research. What are your questions for Nobel laureate David Card? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. Anything about the labor market, I feel like he's your guy. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back after a short break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, 
The smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Berkeley economist David Card, who was awarded the Nobel Prize in economics. A listener wants to ask you, California seems to have competitive wages, but is losing workers and companies to other states like Texas because housing costs are so high. What is Card's take on that? We can keep raising the minimum wage, but if you can't afford a house, this is not a state you can live in. And I'd love you just to take that to the place of what what do we know about the relationship between wages, housing costs, and you know these kind of cities, superstar cities that have done so well? Um, well, actually, interestingly enough, I just finished a paper on that, um, circulated a couple weeks ago um, before the Nobel Prize. Um, and we were looking at workers as they moved across different cities. And um, we could see a, a very important fact that's helpful in understanding what's going on. It turns out that the workers, many workers in a place like San Francisco would earn more no matter where they were. So there's a there's a part of the earnings gap that you see for cities like San Francisco or New York that is really driven by the underlying characteristics of the worker. Now, on top of that, the same worker gets some premium for living in a, a higher wage city or a larger city, but the premium isn't uh, nearly big enough to cover the fact that housing costs are so much higher. We estimate, usually economists say, if the housing costs are 10% higher, then you need like a 3% higher wage, something like 3 4%. So you need to have about a third of that reimbursed in your salary. And um, if the housing costs course, are 300% higher. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and wages are somewhat higher in San Francisco, but nowhere like 300, like 100%. So, so our study really confirmed results. And Actually, an earlier finding um, by my colleague Enrico Moretti, uh, who I think has been on the show before, mm-hmm. had, had he'd suggested this exact finding. And our result basically said, you know, Moretti is right. And it's even stronger than you think, because if you look at the San Francisco workers, they're the kind of workers who would earn more everywhere. And we're not really compensating for their uh, higher cost uh, nearly as much as you would think. Huh. So, so I, I think in that, that finding, yeah. Well, I was going to say in that setting, I think you have to understand, so why are people in San Francisco? Right. Um, and I, I'm sure many listeners wonder that. Um, I think what's going on to some extent is there's some investment. You know, you're a younger worker. You're going to work in, if you're going to work in the tech sector, you can probably do well by spending 10 years in, or maybe a little bit less in, the, in this area, and then maybe move out to a lower cost area. So some of it might be an investment. Uh, that you're making. And, and in that setting, there's always going to be turnover. So the young people are going to come in, they're going to work in the sector and then go out as you would see in finance in New York and maybe in the entertainment sector in LA, same kind of thing. So there's a bit of that going on, but it's kind of a mystery. Um, and <laughs> as, it's as a beautiful place. <laughs> that's why Professor Card. Um, well, for sure, that's true. Yeah. Um, we've got a couple of questions um, on the other end of the pay scale. Uh, Myrta writes, what about wages at the tippy top in a business? For example, I just looked up the annual salary of the CEO of Kaiser Permanente. It's $16 million. Anything to be said about that? And Brian writes, can your guest address a strong minimum wage effect versus a smaller ratio between highest and lowest wages? Uh, so trying to compress that tippy top 
um, and the, the very bottom. Yeah, I think that's a, a concern that many people have and are really wonder about. It's somewhat related to the point I made earlier about like, is this talent? Is this an unbelievable talent or just luck? Um, I think that there are, there's going to be some interesting possibilities. A number of countries have introduced legislation which uh, firms have to report uh, how the CEO salary varies relative to the average salary in the company. And so it's kind of like the Sacramento Bee episode where suddenly we'll know a little bit more how the salaries compare of different workers and, and whether a firm is one that tends to be highly unequal or, or somewhat more equal. I don't know whether that'll have an effect or not. Or, um, the big rise in CEO salaries that occurred between 19, mid eighties and today, no one really has a perfect idea of why that happened. Um, and it's possible that there'll be some interesting research on that coming up, but I, to tell you the truth, I, I tend to work on lower, the lower end of the labor market. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's, there's actually quite a few people who work on the high end. Uh, I think it's pretty important to have, you know, scholars working on the low end. And that, that's the people we really care about, I think, in the end. You know, one of the things that I noted, you know, in, in listening to some of your lectures, you kind of pointed out there is this sort of direct relationship between worker wages and company profits and, I, and, and prices as, as well. Um, and so we have uh, one of our uh, listeners would like to know about that. Karen writes, I'm always surprised that low wages are not talked about from the perspective that workers making low wages are subsidizing low prices. Low wages allow the low prices in fast food restaurants at Walmart. Why should workers subsidize low prices? And I was hoping maybe you could kind of talk about that triangle and why we think we have the particular combination now of low wages, uh, low prices, and high company profits when presumably it could be there could be some other configuration. You know, that's a really good question. I think... Um... I think the U.S. labor market has tended to really um, privilege low-wage jobs. We, for instance, for many, many years, we didn't require them to have healthcare benefits, um, and so you and there, people who work in those jobs are effectively getting all kinds of subsidies from things like food stamp program or subsidized health insurance. So the the economy is actually subsidizing low-wage jobs. Uh, rather than trying to incentivize um, the opposite. And so I think you have to understand that there's benefits to low-wage jobs. For instance, in agriculture, the, the huge benefit that we all get from you know amazing produce at the Berkeley Bowl um, that's kept reasonably priced. But it, the cost of that is that there's a lot of workers that are um, earning low wages. And I guess if you thought, well, those workers are earning much more here than they would in Guatemala or Mexico, or, or if they're mostly immigrant workers, which they are, then that might be a good deal. But if, if uh, in the longer run, we would hope that everyone would, would kind of move up the wage distribution. And I think we're gonna see over the next 10 years, a gradual careful discussion about this and possibly some, some gains for workers at the bottom of the wage distribution. That set of workers have really suffered over the last 30 years, uh, pretty substantially. And it's possible that that's gonna change. That's one of the most hopeful things anyone's ever said on the show, David Card. Thank you for that. Um, let's bring in Mike from San Jose. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, Mike, can you, you hear can us? Hear me? Oh, yeah, we can. <clears throat> hey, thank you. Um, just a quick question. Um, with the workforce being so low due to like government assistance and, and whatnot, uh, wouldn't wh why not give government incentives to people who are working? Would that help 
to lower the unemployment and increase the workforce? Um, actually, that's that's a good question, Mike. There is a, a, such a program. That's the Earned Income Tax Credit, um, and it's um, it's actually a very big part of federal spending on uh, uh, support for lower income families. And it provides the way it works is if you work a little bit, you get kind of a boost um, up to a certain point, up to you know into the twenties uh, of uh, income. And people have, who've studied that, um, including my colleague at Berkeley, Hillary Hoynes, they found that that had a positive effect on getting um, women to work, uh, mothers to work, and uh, without too much negative effect on other workers. So there's a lot of interest in expanding those kind of programs. They are expensive. That's the one thing, because every almost everybody's working. You know, so if you if you give money to people that are working, it's going to cost a lot. Um. Couple more uh, comments and, and just really solid questions for you. Curtis writes: uh, Immigration has historically solved our shortage of low wage labor. How important is the steady supply of immigrants to the labor market? Uh, good question, Curtis. I think that's actually a very important question. Um, I suspect that if if this current situation is that we really shut off some of those flows. Um, and the numbers of people who are available to come are, are, are diminishing. So, you know, there's not a birth rate in Mexico is quite low. Uh, and so there's not such a huge number of people as there were 40 years ago, um, just willing to move in and, and take really low wage jobs. And I suspect that um, that will have long run effects on industries like construction, agriculture, and even on things like um, Uber, Lyft, um, all the delivery service businesses that have started up, those, those businesses were kind of set up in a world where there was all kinds of low-skilled workers available and people that really needed an extra gig for a few hours a week uh, earning, you know, 15, 20 bucks an hour. And it, to the extent that, that that starts to dry up, I think we're going to see a lot of rethinking of how those uh, sectors work. Um, another listener uh, writes, uh, Joe, do you, does your guest have any thoughts on universal basic income? Uh, you know, that's interesting. That's a subject that was studied in the 1970s, believe it or not. We had a couple of big, some of the first experiments, real randomized experiments in, in economics were basic income experiments. And uh, they found a couple of things. They found that if you gave a basic income grant um, and then had a, a system of taking it back so people that higher incomes, like the ones that are being tested out in different places around North America right now, it has a small disincentive for work, um, but it's also quite costly. And so the, at the end of the day, I think what was decided after the, as a result of those experiments was it, it um, you know, was maybe not quite as much of a panacea as, as advocates for it thought. It was extremely popular. Um, Milton Friedman, uh, the famous uh, conservative economist, was a, really one of the big advocates of, mm -hmm. of, a, of an income, negative income tax. We call it a negative income tax rather than a universal basic. Um, and so that, that system is popular among economists, but it is expensive. It, actually, to tell you the truth, the earned income tax credit is a version of that. Right. And even a lot of universal basic income advocates have started calling it an expanded earned income tax credit. Uh, let's uh, bring in Daniel from West Sacramento. 
Hi. Uh, we have such a myopic view of, of work and, and culture and economics in this country. What if we were to stimulate uh, the creation of, of uh, more and more uh, cooperative businesses, like, for example, the Mondragon societies in, in, in northern Spain. Uh, uh, what, 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 what is your point of view about, uh, you know, uh, ex- expanding our view of, of work, uh, work, workforce, and the whole job situation uh, by creating more cooperative uh, yeah. businesses? Thank you so much, Daniel. And, you know, where I would take this question to, David Card, is can we change the nature of the firms that run the economy? Or do you see them as more or less fixed and that their behavior uh, is not going to change a lot to, say, change the, the split in profits and worker wages? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there was actually the co-op movement really got going in the Great Depression in the U.S., uh, and, you know, it was a response to the great difficulties that emerged then. Um, my father was a farmer and was a member of a, a farmer's co-op. Um, and we that's where we bought a lot of supplies for our farm when I was a kid. I, there was um, some success in that sector um, in the forestry industry, um, or there was in, in Washington State. It, those, those organizations have trouble raising capital. Uh, I think that's the 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 one thing, and and the the banks and so on are, are probably somewhat more difficult to convince that that um, a cooperative organization is going to be well run and make hard nosed business decisions in the future. Um, so that it takes a while, I think, to convince things. I don't think there's a reason why they couldn't be um, broader, but um, I, my understanding is that they've become a little less popular than they were in the, in the 50s and 60s. Mm. There used to be cooperative grocery stores, for instance, in Chicago, and I think yeah. they're gone now. So I have some questions uh, about other factors in our economy here, particularly on low-wage work. And one thing we haven't talked about is the gig economy and its sort of weirding of work, particularly at the lower end of the wage uh, spectrum. What does the kind of current economics research tell us about the effect that, you know, your Ubers and your delivery drivers are having on that kind of work? Well, it seems like most people who are doing that work um, from from the research I've seen are doing it on a part time basis. So the U.S. is a, is a different economy than than many European countries in that there's a fairly large number of people who have two jobs. There's even people with three. And that's one way that lower income people uh, cope in, in, in the U.S. context where we don't have, you know, big, generous social programs. And so I think our, our, the way we think about those jobs is as part-time uh, extra work for most people. There are some people who make it a full-time job. Um, and I think there's parts of that need to be really thought out. Um, the, For instance, the regulation of of the taxi industry historically was highly regulated thinking, well, we want to regulate taxis to reduce uh, traffic congestion. And uh, then we all of a sudden turn off all of that. And now we've got, you know, there's some recent studies suggesting that maybe that's resulted in more traffic than, you know, than we fully understood. So historically, I think we had a more holistic view about many of these sectors and said, okay, we're going to try and make sure that we balance, you know, the, the number of workers and, 
the benefits that they get and the rights that they have. And the tech sector kind of took advantage of some loopholes and really expanded quickly in a kind of a frontier way. And I think there's going to be a lot of re-litigation of that over the next 10 years. Earlier in the show, you also talked about making progress on understanding the wage gap between white and non-white workers and um, uh, between genders. Um, can you tell us more about like what that progress has been and what it tells us about say, structural racism in labor markets? Yeah, so I recently completed a study looking at white and non-white workers in Brazil. Brazil is the other country in the world that has a you know very large number of, um, of Africans who were brought in as slaves. And uh, so it has a, about 50% of the population is non-white. And it has a, you know, not quite an advanced labor market, but fairly modern in most, most places. And so it's a great opportunity to study. We can't start these studies yet. We don't quite have the data to do this in the United States. But I was interested in the question of, to what extent does the hiring policies of, of firms affect the non-white wage gap? So we're all aware that some firms pay more than others. Uh, it's kind of related to what I talked about at the very beginning about pay discretion. So, and everybody as they go through the labor market is hoping to get a job at a higher paying firm. I mean, in academia, you'd like to move from Berkeley to Stanford. Everybody kind of knows that. And so- <laughs> Can you say that as a Berkeley professor? I'm not sure you can. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm close to retirement, so it doesn't matter for me. But uh, so, so everybody's kind of aware of that. And the question is, to what extent do the, do the discrimination by hiring agents mean that non-whites are stuck at the lower points on the job ladder? We call this set of firms the job ladder. And I we found that in, in the Brazilian context, that was a pretty big chunk of the non-white wage gap. So if you could open up the doors, you would find, um, find some opportunities. And a, a really interesting follow-on to that, I have a grad student at uh, Berkeley um, who's done a, just the most amazing study looking at what happens if a company is owned by a non-white in Brazil. And it turns out that those firms are the ones that hire more non-whites, particularly for management mm. type jobs. So his research really suggests, or it's actually two grad students, um, Martina and Roberto, and they've got a just amazing finding that it looks like, you know, having more non-white ownership would really be beneficial for um, non-whites wanting to move up the food chain in the labor market. And so it's very closely related to this big concern. Why don't, um, why are there so few non-white entrepreneurs? And is there some problem that's preventing them from creating wealth, like the problems in the housing market? Uh, so it's all kind of interconnected. Thank you so much. We've been talking with UC Berkeley labor economist, David Card, who was awarded the Nobel Prize in economics last week. Congratulations again, and thanks for coming on. Thank you. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with host Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED. 
always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.